This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. We're your counselors, and... Uh, We're the girls from the last show. Just us? different outfits. Different outfits. I have new shoes on. That's yeah. about it, though. How about you t- give us a little whoa? Oh, let What's me show it without showing my underwear. Nice, nice. This is... I keep... The, I, I get brand loyal to murderinos who make me clothes. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> so this is Sarah Duke. She made this, and look. Yes. Sarah Duke knows her stuff. Yeah. Out of Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Um, oh, this is a unique vintage piece. Right. Promo code murder. Commercials for it on the show. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no pockets. <laughs> they haven't learned uh, yet. They will. Don't worry. There's a big pocket in the front. Right there. Right in there? Right there. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. If I do the foundation garment, everything goes way upstairs. <laughs> It's just how it is. But you know what? That was our promise to you yep. for My Favorite Weekend. That's right. Yeah. I we can't, bring the noise. I we can't bring do, the funk. I can't do that, but... No, you do other things. I'm really happy for you. You have a great personality. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Stop it. Listen, I'm not on WikiFeet for nothing, okay? <laughs> we all have our strengths. <laughs> George's feet. Mine are my high arches, incredibly high arches. Um, All perverts give her feet five stars. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, guys, remember last night with the whole arborist thing that happened in the front row? When everyone was woohooing, we were like, how do we have so many arborists here? They were lying. They weren't. We talked to them today. They weren't arborists. Yes, they're not. They were just, they were fireball enthusiasts, is what they were. <laughs> they were, they love the red juice, as they called it. Ew. And my favorite moment was in that we um, got to meet the woman who yelled what I thought she yelled, fuck you, which made me laugh really hard. And I enjoyed it. Then other people started doing it. I was like, I actually don't like that. Um, just the one moment was good. But then in the meet and greet line, we met the woman who did it. She was, I need you to know, uh, you thought I said, fuck you. But I said, good for you. I have an accent. 
It was so cute. It's a terrible version of your accent. I'm so sorry. Oh, she's not here to hear it? Oh, what? my God. We'll repeat it. Of course that, she's getting a drink. Oh, my God. She is dead meat when she gets back here. <laughs> that was a dedicated moment. Yeah. The one person not in the fucking room. You know what? When she comes back, just fucking ignore her. <laughs> I'm going to do it. <laughs> Um, can we can we take a moment to thank all the fucking awesome guests we've had tonight? Oh my god! And last night, the Percast, Jensen and Hall's Murder Squad. And last night, yes, Io Till It Right. Who? Oh, and then our incredible DJs Fifi Larue and Dante Fontana. They're good friends of ours, good friends of the podcast. Also, we um, so many people that we got to talk to today and this evening talked about how amazingly run and organized yeah. this weekend has been. And that is because of all the people who worked so hard at the company CID to put this entire event on. Right. So we have a lot. We thank them so much. They have shepherded this entire thing, made everything so lovely yeah. and um, And beautiful. the gorgeous Arlington Theater. Yes. This beautiful place. They fed you hot dogs. They fed you popcorn. They fed you canned wine. They saw how drunk you got last night. They were like, <laughs> they need some stuff in their stomach. This yeah. is crazy. And they're like, can I have the night off? I'm kind of afraid of these people. <laughs> <laughs> Give them popcorn, it'll help. <laughs> yes. So thank and thank of course all of you yeah. for getting it together, making this trip we, from what we've met and talked to everybody about. You're from all over the goddamn planet and it is crazy. Yeah. It's Bananas. crazy. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Really. Um, we're really uh lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Should we sit down? Let's do it. Okay. All right, we got. Oh, our- wait a second! I think we should bring out Stephen. Ah! Yeah, 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 yeah. Stephen. Stephen Ray Morris, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, and his mustard shirt. I just want to thank you both for letting me talk about my cat on stage at the Arlington for a half an hour. Thank you. You're Living the dream. I know, really. And being back in Santa Barbara because I'm from UC. I went to UCSB. So shout out to Santa Barbara. Yeah. Love it. Amazing. The fighting Chipotle. (laughs) Original. Perfect. I love it. Thanks for being here. It's just fun to finally, instead of say, he's not here. Yeah. He's here. He's here. Yeah. And he went to college here. You'll be backstage pulling on your mustache while we record this? I did in the wings the whole time. Okay. All right. I did be in the wings the whole time. Okay, perfect. Okay. Love it. Thanks, Steven. Steven Ray Morris! He looks good in mustard, doesn't he? Steven's an autumn, for sure. I mean... Love having him here. I'm sweating. Let's sit down. <laughs> hey, let's... <laughs> Profusely, I would Let's say. Let's stop pretending and sit down. Oh, thank God. Standing, you guys. In the last 48 hours, I think I've had 29 cups of coffee. I've watched them all. Oh, can I say we got a mug today from someone and it said, I've worn heels that are bigger than your dick. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I love it and I, uh, yeah. And also, I'd just like to say, Two men gave us that yeah, mug. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> We're look- teaching them so well. That's right. Everybody's learning. Everybody's growing. 
Everybody's Okay. Yes. Thank you. You do it. No, that was Full it. Full voice. That was it. They love it. <laughs> that um, was it. Oh shit. Hey, Vince, do you have that bag I gave you? Oh no. Karen has a secret bag. I fucking knew it. What if, is this? If Vince is around, Stephen, will you find Vince real quick? Because he has a bag. Oh, here he is. He says he'll be right back. What did you do? Just a little something. You did not. Well. It's actually, it's not going to be worth the hold that we're going to have to do. All right. Then why don't you tell them about this show? Okay. We haven't done this in so fucking long. (laughs) No, we haven't done it in so long. This is actually our last live show in the U.S. for 20, what's the, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. So. And thank you because a lot of you, we know a lot of you came out for this last, uh, they called it the winter spring tour. (laughs) But what that meant was that we were on tour for six fucking months straight. (laughs) Yeah. Coming to see you all in every city in this Lots nation. Of chicken strips have been eaten oh. all over this great nation. I really had to have a, a come to Jesus about macaroni and cheese in my life. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't good. <laughs> it's more of a joke. Thank you. Vince. And thanks to Vince for tour Vince managing. April, tour manager. Husband. Husband. Keeper of the flame. He keeps me sane. He keeps us sane. What did you do? I just got you a little something because... Because I know you wanted it, and it's our first um, fan weekend together. So I thought I'd get you a little Aww. tiny gift. It's really... I didn't get you anything. It's, it's okay. a wig! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I want to be a wig person, and now I have a purple wig. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Wow, you, you did this. Yeah, I'm, I did. I'm like touched that you did this. Georgia, I think about you every day. <laughs> You have to because we talk yeah, every fucking day. To. I have to talk to this her all gorgeous. the time. This is I think I know that girl on the cover too. <laughs> oh, I think you partied with that girl in so. 1997. This is amazing. I'm going to put it on after the show. Yeah. Is that okay? I know. You've expressed a couple times um, the love of the idea of just having a wig. Yeah. 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 So let's get you started. I support it. Thank okay. you so much. You're welcome. That's very amazing. Yes. Untouched. I forgot my tissue. Fuck. Okay. Oh, no. Yeah, it was just too deep. It was too deep. Okay. Um, oh, you're I'm first. first. You're first. Tell them about the show. Oh, that's though. right. You guys don't know this, but this is a true crime comedy podcast. That's right. In case you were walking up State Street and you're just like, I wonder what this is. I'm going to go in. Hey, it sounds like a murder mystery show. Free hot dogs. <laughs> Count me in. I'm there. Uh, this is a true crime comedy podcast where we combine uh, and fuse two things that are radically different, comedy and true crime. Rather so, unseamlessly. Right? Uh-huh. Kind, of, kind of jerkily is actually a good way to describe it. Yeah. It's uh, murder and violence uh, is the worst thing that can happen to a person. And we don't think that's funny. We just think we're funny. <laughs> and we like to talk about true crime. We are passionate about true crime. We care about it. We empathize with it. We're obsessed with it. We're worried about it. And we're nervous about it. It gives us anxiety and it cures our anxiety. We can't explain it. We've tried to explain it. No one can explain it. Yeah. We just like it. And so do you. Yep. And so if at any point in this evening anybody was dragged along here against their will and doesn't get it, that would be so fucking weird on this weekend. (laughs) I had to pay $19,000 to watch something I don't like. Well, that's your problem, sir. But if you find you don't like that combination, you can go ahead and get the fuck out. (laughs) 
Now, now do it in drunk Karen. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> do you have a lip balm? Do you have a lip balm? What? <laughs> That's fun when you wake up at a bar. Oh yeah. Sitting up talking, but that happened to me once at the three of clubs. Yeah, yeah. I woke up making out with this guy. <laughs> Like shit. Oh, he's cute. Okay, I'll keep doing it. That must have been a soothing kiss. It was really nice. Like, Good night, night. It's pretty great. Okay, I'm I first. Think. <laughs> Georgia, is there anything scarier than trying to log into an account and it tells you that your password is incorrect, and then you try again and it's the same thing? And after a few more failed attempts, big red letters appear saying you've been locked out and your account is suspended. That happens to me all the time, Karen. But Scary password stories can have happy endings if you give 1Password a try. 1Password is a user-friendly password management system. It's trusted by consumers, families, small businesses, and large-scale enterprises. If you're tired of being the family member everyone texts for a streaming login or the unofficial keeper of all those shared work credentials, it's time for you to pass the torch to 1Password. They allow for secure login sharing. With 1Password, you can securely store more than just passwords, autofill everything from usernames to payment details and personal info. They'll also notify you about potential data breaches. 1Password saves everyone time. And in many cases, that save time equals money saved. The accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. I mean, you should, but don't just do that. The Associated Press uses 1Password to secure their sensitive information in high-risk areas. Right now, our listeners can get a two-week free trial at onepasswordcom MFM. That's two free weeks at one, as in the number one, password.com slash MFM. OnePassword.com slash MFM. Goodbye. Okay. I'm doing the disappearance of the Solomon family. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. So this one reminds me a lot of the McStay family disappearance, but there's di- there's differences and there's similarities. <laughs> Let's talk like about Like so many them. things in life. It's true. <laughs> Um, the majority of this uh, information, though, I got from a 2018 Los Angeles Magazine article by the author and journalist Stacy Perman, who actually was personally involved in this case, and I'll tell you why once I'm talking about it. Okay. And also, um, there's an episode of the Trail Went Cold podcast that I listened to about it, okay. which is a fun podcast. Okay. So, Elaine and Saul Solomon, they... Saul Solomon? Saul Solomon. Okay. They first met in a bar in Hollywood in 1971. Oh, shit. So many ferns. Oh, my God. (laughs) Ferns and Coke was the name of the bar. (laughs) Do you want to meet at Ferns and Coke at 6.30 or 7.30? In the morning? Let's do it. (laughs) We'll stay up all night and then meet there. Um, She was a... uh, Picture her. Big, blonde, beautiful hair. 70s. She was a 28-year-old divorcee with a four-year-old daughter named Michelle. Saul was a 24-year-old Israeli immigrant who had come to Los Angeles a year earlier. He um, drove a taxi and was selling encyclopedias to make ends meet. He, I'll sh- let me show you a picture of them because yes. they're fucking cool looking. Let me point this there. There we go. Oh, Party people. Oh my God. How fun are they? They are the most fun. And look, not to brag, but they're Jewish. <laughs> What's up, my people? <laughs> You, he has two rings. He doesn't uh-huh. just have a pinky ring on. He went ahead and wore, I guess, it's a, is it a wedding ring? I don't know. 
And apparently they're at a KFC party because of the hats. <laughs> I don't know. They're at, for the old people references, ferals. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so he's this tall, burly, gruff guy who wears a, he wears a hat over his hairpiece. <laughs> Um, Does he really? <laughs> uh-huh. He, they're just like fun. He would hang out shirtless, have a lit cigarette dangling from his lips. Hell yes. Yeah. Um, Elaine had these big brown eyes. She had dyed blonde hair. They were a very social, fun couple. They were always surrounded by friends and family that they all lived in the area. Um, after they married, they had a son named Mitchell. I'm, tr- no, I'm just turning it off. You oh, have to look at okay. it. Sorry. That's that okay. Was that was selfish of you. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they had, so she had Michelle, then they had, they got married, they had a son named Mitchell, and they moved out of their Reseda condo to a nice house in a cul-de-sac in Northridge. Ooh. On a quiet little street called Lassen. And so, really? Um, Saul started a business refilling fire extinguishers, which I guess you wouldn't think is a thing that needs to be done, but it needs to be it done. It needs to be done, and Saul would do it for you yeah. at a price. Yeah. Everyone, refill your fire. Please refill your Extinguisher. fire. Extinguishers. Extinguishers. <laughs> um, they had family like nice things. They had Greek statuary surrounding their large swimming pool. It's the 70s. No, no, I know. They had a large screen TV. Again, the 70s. It's a big deal. That was, uh, it was as wide as it was long. We brought it tonight. It's here it it's is. It's here. <laughs> it's all the way back out into the parking lot. <laughs> They had a VCR, which was a, we used to have to rent those from the video store. We yes. wanted to watch it to cassette, so whatever. <laughs> um, they had one. They had nice clothes, and they had nice cars and everything. They're, so the fire extinguisher refilling business is kind of lucrative? Well, no. Oh. Okay. So... Um, Let's get into this. Yeah. Okay. So everything changed, though. On Wednesday, October 13th, 1982, a neighbor next door, and this uh, neighbor next door noticed that the Solomon's pool was overflowing. And so they called up a neighbor friend and were like, that were friends with them, like, can you go check on them and tell them to turn their pool off? I don't know how the pools work. Um, Yeah, you turn them on and off, like a sink. (laughs) Right. That you swim in. (laughs) Get that Greek statuary out of here and turn the pool off. Um, they call the neighbors to go check on them, and it, the neighbor, the best friend of Michelle, the little the girl, is Stacy Perman, the one who wrote this article. Oh, wow. And it's a great article. Um, and so she and her mother come and knock on the door. They ring the doorbell. Nobody answers. One of the cars is still in the driveway, and the family cocker spaniel, I had to include, named Mishmish. Oh. Yep. Is uh, that Yiddish for something? Yes. Great. Is in the backyard. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> um, no, I can't. Okay. That's all I know. Mm-hmm. Stacy's mom called around to friends and family and found out that Elaine hadn't showed up to the clinic where she worked as a volunteer counselor and neither of the kids, 14-year-old Michelle and 9-year-old Mitchell, had been at school that day. So, of course, everyone's like, oh, shit. The police are called and they found that the doors are all locked, but the security, um, you know, alarm has been turned, hadn't been activated. Eventually they enter through a bathroom window and they're like, the house is totally normal. They don't notice anything weird. And in fact, they say to Elaine's close cousin, Doreen, the beds are even made. And she was like, that's a fucking red flag because Elaine never makes the bed. Oh no. That's what's going to happen at my house. <laughs> Karen would not, what do you mean there's no socks on the ground? I don't know. What's your thing? There's no drifting piles of dog hair that are just going, they get away from me sometimes. 
<laughs> um, so they're like, that's not normal. Amen. When they look closer, the detectives found that Michelle's bed frame, so the bed's made, and they notice that her bed frame is broken and that her pillowcases, sheets, and bedspread were all gone. Ew, so it's just the comforter pulled up over naked Made, pillows and, yeah, oh, and a broken yeah, yeah. bed frame. Sent 1,000 red flags. Uh-huh. And they also discovered drops of blood on her bedroom wall and mattress. So, uh, and a small patch of carpet had been cut out as well. So Always bad. I know. So the police classify it as a missing persons case. I know. Um, that is until about a week later when a Caltrans worker happens upon a wallet belonging to one of the Salomons alongside the Antelope Valley Freeway, which is about 15 miles away. And then the family passports, wallets, and photos are found nearby as well. So then the case is turned over to major crimes and reclassified as an active homicide investigation. So this story makes global headlines. Everyone's like, what happened to this nice suburban family that just fucking vanished? And a press conference where Daryl Gates, who at the time is LA's police chief, hey. called the inv- I know, called the investigation difficult and perplexing, which is not what you want the police chief to fucking call no, your yeah, investigation. No, yeah, keep that shit to yourself, <laughs> sir. That's right. Pre-write something before you go make your well, statement. Then, then he says, when a, someone asks how much blood was in the house or how much blood was lost in, uh, in Michelle's bedroom, and he says, quote, more blood than I would want to lose. It's a different time. It was a different time. <laughs> a shittier time. It was a much... It was hard. Life was harder. Okay. Um... He said that he said that LAPD detectives had been already quote aware of Saul, but he refused to go into detail. But so this is the problem with this story is because we can't talk to him, and there's no it, there's a lot of his name being dragged through the mud, which we don't have corroboration for any of it. So people are saying he's in the Israeli mafia, that he's a, an arms dealer, but there's that's people who are trying to hide something saying that, not oh, the police, okay. but the you know people behind where they went. So. Um, well, it turns out, so that they look into the case, and it happens that on the night before they were discovered missing, on October 12th, Elaine's parents had been visiting the house, and around 6 o'clock, Saul had left, telling everyone he was going to a car auction with a business associate, and um, that was normal. He was like, oh, this business associate would buy luxury cars uh, used, fix them up, and sell them, and Saul had uh, invested in the business. So he leaves at 6. Elaine's parents go home around 10.30, and Elaine's on the phone at around uh, 11, and she says the doorbell rings, and her friend says, when she heard the doorbell ring, and Elaine goes, "Um, I have to go. Harvey's at the door, and hangs up. So Harvey was the person that uh, Saul had left with. Okay. So that was the last time anyone heard from the family. So, of course, they focus on this guy, Harvey, who fixes up cars and was the last person either of them were associated with. Okay. He is a British citizen who had an extensive criminal history back home and had been convicted of more than a dozen crimes in England, including armed robbery, and had gone to prison nine times. Oh. In 2000... Nope. In 1980... (laughs) In 2030... (laughs) He finally got his shit together and stopped going to prison. In 1980, two years after moving to the U.S., so he had been involved in an arson on New Year's Eve in which the Sunset Boulevard mansion belonging to the Saudi sheik Mohammed al-Fassi, they lit it on fire, the house got totaled, but it was just a fucking ruse, (laughs) elaborate cover to steal all the art from his house. Oh. And then they were like, oh, it all went up in flames. And it's like, no, it didn't. Yeah. Um, I like that you said the house got totaled. (laughs) 
It tumbled three or four times, end <laughs> over end. That axle's just bent. Oh, yeah. It's not, Sorry. it's total. You can't. Um, Raider had, tur- had turned and received immunity in exchange for testifying against his partners in crime. So what's the c- connection between this guy Raider and Saul? Well, I, as I already said, Georgia. Um, <laughs> he's Please the, don't yell at yourself I'm during s- this. He's the owner of a European car repair shop in Reseda called Mr. Motor. And, and Saul had invested $20,000 in the business. When police questioned him on October 14th, noting that he had scratches on his hands, always a fucking red flag. Oh, no, I'm just super itchy. <laughs> well, <laughs> to he the said, point where I draw blood from myself. He said he got it by working on cars. You know those scratchy fucking cars. Yeah, there's a lot of cars that have rakes in them. <laughs> just sitting in there. And that cat. axle's broken and the rake is total. The rake, you're not going to get that rake back. No. Uh, he said that the night he and Saul had gone to this auction that he had left the house for, uh, afterward he dropped Saul off at an Israeli restaurant on Ventura Boulevard, and then Raider said he then drove over to Saul's house in his van, parked the van at the house, rang the doorbell, got the keys to the Rolls Royce from Elaine, and was like, goodbye, good luck with everything, and took the car back to his Mr. Motor to get fixed. Okay. Is this all making sense? Yes. Okay. Um, I, now I'm just thinking about that he has a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Why would you buy a car that expensive? Because the only thing that's going to happen is some 19-year-old is going to just ding the side of it. I mean, listen, when I parallel park, all bets are off. I'm going to clonk. You go forward till you hear something hit. Then you go backward till you hear something hit. That's why I didn't buy a Rolls Royce. That's the only reason (laughs) I didn't buy one. No, you know, we got to get one. (laughs) Let's be those assholes. Okay. So, and everything was fine. I was the last person to see both of them. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Um, the, the Solomon's Mercedes was found at Raider's garage, uh, but he d- denied any involvement, and he told police that he believes Saul was involved in transporting guns with the Israeli mafia. So he's the one who gets to, you know, start that rumor. Right. So, um, but when police look into Raider's story, they found that the car auction that he supposedly went to with Saul actually ended an hour before they even went to it. And um, the restaurant was closed the night of. Check the basic facts of your lie, yeah. people. Yeah. You got to do light research on your lie. Yeah. Now, it was harder back then because you yes. would have had to go to the library, yeah. get some microfish out. Right. You'd have to go to the Yelp book, pull out Yelp. <laughs> Book. The, the Yelpo pages. What Stop time, it. What time did this place that I'm lying about close? Hold on, let me call on the rotary phone. <laughs> oh, I missed the number. I have to uh, start uh, over start. again. Why Operator. isn't it hanging up? Why isn't Okay. There's so many 22-year-olds that don't know what we're talking about right now. Okay. God bless. Good bless. So then in November 1983, there's this dude, his name's Ashley. Um, Ashley Paul, he comes forward. Does he have amazing hair? You'd hope. Ashley. Let's say he does. Okay. He's Raider, this guy Raider's cousin, and the private investigator that Elaine's family had hired were like, they went over to him in England and they were like, stop being a dick and tell us what happened. And he like finally broke down and was like, okay, fine. That went like, just like that. That's all it takes. Yeah. Um, so Paul, this guy Ashley, had worked for his cousin Raider's dealership, and, but returned to England after the Solomons went missing. In exchange for immunity from prosecution, he comes back to the U.S. and tells investigators that he witnessed Raider shoot Saul in the head in the office of his dealership after Saul demanded the repayment of 20, the 20 grand he had invested. 
Paul then, the, Ashley, I'm going to call him Ashley, then claimed that he and Raider then went to the Solomon home where they murdered Elaine, Michelle, and Mitchell. Oh, he just no. fucking is like, this is straight up what happened, and my cousin's crazy. And then he's like, um, then I helped bury the family's bodies in the desert in Antelope Valley. Um, but then he was like, that's not all. Remember in March of 1982, he told them, there's this uh, other couple named Peter and Joan Davis that had gone missing. They were a British couple. And uh, they had lived only two miles away from the Solomons and also did business with Raider's dealership. And he said that Raider murdered them as well. Oh my God. So I don't think they'd even connected at that point that there's this other couple that went missing. Right. And then... Okay. He said that um, Raider murdered the couple again in order to steal their artwork from their home and that he helped him bury the bodies in the desert near Bakersfield. Um, and he claimed that he was also responsible, another one, for the January 1982 disappearance of a Burbank businessman named Ronald Adib, who also invested money in Raiders dealership, but he didn't know where his body was. So he goes to, he's like, yeah, I'll take you to those bodies. Of course, they're not there. They don't find them. Uh, maybe he's lying. Who knows? And, uh, they, he, they arrest Harvey Raider, but he is released due to insufficient evidence. Um, and then, blah, 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 all this crazy shit happens about, like, they try to arrest people, it doesn't work, everyone goes home to England, um, the, the, the judge dismisses the charges, he goes back to England, and he's like, I'm not coming back, fuck this shit. So he basically confessed and tried to his best to, like, show where the victim's bodies were buried, and Supposedly. it just, like, didn't work out. Yeah. And he left. Yeah. Okay. So, um... Then in September 1988, so this guy Harvey Raider's still in town, but they, um, they serve, he serves a term in prison for passport fraud and is facing deportation. So the authorities are like, we gotta get him before he later is out of town. Um, he, uh, so they, they, the case against him is very circumstantial though. So like they don't have anything. His cousin won't come back and testify against him. At his trial, the defense pushed the theory that the family was murdered because Saul was involved in illegal activities with the Israeli mafia. After several weeks of deliberations, the jury vote 11 to 1 in favor of convicting him, but couldn't reach an unanimous verdict, so that a mistrial is declared. Okay. Then, at the second trial, uh, he goes, let's see, second mistrial, there's a second mistrial, and then um, he's back on trial for the third time in May 1992. And there's no concrete evidence, there's no bodies, no witness, no weapons linking him at all. It's all circumstantial. And then they find out that the 11 to 1, that one person, was like, well, I don't even know if they're dead, so I, that's why I didn't convict. Like, if the family's even dead. He's like, maybe they just took off. Yeah, and threw all their ID on the road. Yeah. Like, as in celebration. And I'm sorry, left Mishmish behind? No. Not happening. Not happening. That dog... Um, so then they're like, oh, great. Well, that's our defense now is they're not dead. Or Saul uh, committed familiacide and killed the whole family, and he took off. That was like, based on no evidence, that was their argument. Um, so this time around, the jury voted to acquit the now 49-year-old Harvey Raider of the murders. So he got acquitted. He collapsed and sobbed quietly in his chair as the not guilty verdict was read. Wow. Yeah. Since the case, since then the case has gone cold. Uh, it's been almost 40 years and the bodies of the Solomon family, 35 year old, uh, Saul, 39 year old Elaine, and 15 year old Michelle and 9 year old Mitchell have never been found. Really? And that is the disappearance of the Solomon family. Wow. Awful. Yeah. Sorry. 
No, hey. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? It's just fucked all I know, around. I know. There's that that thing of like there being no evidence. So then, like when it goes to trial, lawyers are basically paid to make up stuff. Yeah, and, and it's make the you- only chance you'll get if. if it's a it's an acquittal. You can't retry him for the same. That's right. Thing. I know you hate that. You I hate do. that double jeopardy law. I do until it happens to me. But yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I just oh. feel like it's a matter of time until they find them, and we can hopefully put this to bed. That would be yeah, amazing. It's really sad. And so yeah, it was um, Stacey Perman's best friend was Michelle, and so she wrote this beautiful article about it trying it's to amazing. figure out what happened to her best friend and she was there she and her mom went to the house that yeah day. yeah it's so sad um okay well i'm going to do um the local story it's the hitchhiker slayer thorness christensen oh this dick yeah we're going from bad to worse, or worse to worse, actually. Um, so I got the information for this Wikipedia Murderpedia, an LA Times article from 1979 wow. that was on GoldenStateKiller.com. Oh. Hey. Um, a book called The Encyclopedia of Kidnappings by Michael Newton, and an episode of um, a very great TV series on YouTube called Born to Kill? Question mm. mark. Um, which is really good, but I... Born to kill? (laughs) Make the decision. Um, Yeah. Okay. This starts on April 18th, 1979. A 24-year-old sex worker named Lydia Preston is working Hollywood Boulevard uh, when a man stops his car and asks her for, or picks her up for a date. (laughs) Asks her for a date. It was not romantic. Um, They have a conversation. They agree on a price. She gets into the car, and they start driving away. Um, Lydia, he tells Lydia that he's from Santa Barbara and that he works construction. He's in town on vacation. Now, let's, you know, let's hear it for Santa Barbara. (laughs) Yeah. He's done a great job this weekend. Yes. Um, So, uh... So Lydia, uh, as they're, as he's talking, Lydia's like, oh, there's a motel right there. We should go to that one. Mm. And he just keeps on driving mm. and talking. So then she's like, okay, um, there's one right there and points out another one. He keeps driving. And he basically drives up into the Hollywood Hills um, where it's windy, secluded roads and it's very dark. There's not, you know, it's away from the city lights. Um, and as they're driving along a windy road up in the Hollywood Hills, he pulls out a gun and shoots Lydia in the head. Oh, my God. She doesn't die. She survives. Not only does she not die, but she fucking grabs the wheel and crashes the car into the side of the road. Holy shit. And then gets out and fucking runs to the nearest house. Lydia. Knocks on the door. The neighbor opens it. She's like, please fucking help me right this second. He calls an ambulance. She goes to Cedar sinai has emergency surgery, and fucking survives this attack. Oh, my God. Yes. It's a really nice start to a fucking terrible story. Okay. All goes downhill from here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, okay. okay, so... Uh, But aside from her statement, the LAPD has no solid leads on who this attacker could be or what his motives were. Um, 
If they'd contacted authorities in Santa Barbara, they might have learned that murders with the exact same MO of Lydia Preston's attack had been taking place in that area for almost three years. So we'll go back to November 20th, 1976. 21-year-old UCSB student Jacqueline Rook tells a friend of hers that she's going to go shopping and she's last seen hitchhiking along a busy intersection in Isla Vista. Um, so hitchhike, it's 70s, so mm-hmm. hitchhiking is very common at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's not a, a lot of e- nighttime bus service or public transportation. Right. Um, so it's, so all the, basically all the students, um, did it. It was very popular, because uh, most of them didn't have cars. So Jacqueline disappears, uh, and when it, her disappearance passes the 24 hour mark, um, the concern turns to fear, of course. Um, some people fear that a dangerous criminal who's passing through the area has kidnapped her because no one believes that anyone in this small, close-knit community could be responsible for, right. for kidnapping young women. Um, and the, the investigators open the investigation, uh, but there's no solid leads. Two weeks later, on December 6, 1976, a 19-year-old waitress from Goleta named Marianne Saris goes to a doctor's appointment around 4.30 p.m., And afterwards, she walks outside to the intersection of Hollister Avenue and Patterson Avenue to hitchhike home. And uh, eventually, she gets picked up uh, by a stranger, and that's the last time anyone sees her alive. Mm. So the kidnappings of these two uh, women who were hitchhiking, of course strike fear in the community. Um, people in Isla Vista and Santa Barbara, but mostly in the, the Isla Vista area, they take to the streets and they protest um, against basically that they need more public transportation. Right. They need, you know, safety and for the safety of women. Um, and uh, yeah, basically it's like a first take back the night kind of thing yeah. of like, you can't just fucking leave us out yeah. here, you assholes. I'm putting words into those students' mouths. <laughs> But I bet I'm pretty accurate. Um, One of those protesters um, is 21-year-old UCSB student Patricia Laney. So Patricia um, is a talented actress. She's a juggler. She loves juggling. That's right. Um, And she's also an activist, especially for women's issues. So on January 18th, 1977... Patty decides to go out and distribute missing person flyers for Jacqueline Rook and Marianne Saris. And she walks all the way across town, passing out these flyers. And when she's done, she waits for her friend to pick her up Mm. at the intersection of Hollister and Patterson. I don't like it. But her friend runs late. And by the time they get to that intersection, Patty is gone. (gasps) And it's the exact same intersection where Marianne Saris went missing. Oh my God. Less than 24 hours later, uh, a police officer patrolling a secluded road in Refugio Canyon um, comes upon the nude body of a woman who's been shot in the head with a small caliber gun. Mm. Her clothing and backpack are found less than a mile away, and the identifi- identification confirms that it is the body of Patty Laney. And the discovery of this body, of course, is devastating to the entire community, um, but it also gives investigators their first clues. Um, the road is not well known, and it's pretty remote area, so that indicates that this killer must be familiar with the area and might be a local. Right. Um, they also find paper towels near Patty's body that are later identified to be restaurant quality, like to le- restaurant suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, Patty's blood as well as some latent fingerprints are found on those paper towels. Um, they, it, those latent fingerprints don't match any in the system that they have, but they file all the evidence for future testing. Um, and then they go back to that canyon and they scour the area for more clues because now they have something to go on, right. so they're just going for anything. Yeah. And this is when further up the same road um, that Patty was found on, the police discover the body of Jacqueline Brooke wow. on the same road. She's, also, she's been shot twice in the head and her clothing was also missing. Uh, four months later, on May 22nd, 1977, Marianne Saris's body is finally found in Drum Canyon, which is north of Santa Barbara, and she's also been shot in the head and found nude. So, one night in February in 1977, which is about a month after the discovery of Patty and Mary's bodies, 20-year-old Thor Christensen picks up his buddy Guy Mailer to hang out. And the two grab some booze at a liquor store in Goleta, and then they go off um, to the side of a freeway uh, on a cliff that overlooks the ocean, which was like the cool spot to get high. You all know it. Um, <laughs> We've been there this weekend, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> um, let's go to the cliff. So they're sitting in Thor's car, and Guy's rolling a joint, and Thor doesn't realize he has his foot on the brake. So the brake lights attract the attention of a patrolling cop, that's been nearby. So um, the cop sees the booze, sees the weed, he confiscates them, you know, for official use. <laughs> and uh, then he tells them he has to write them a ticket. He asks Thor to open his trunk, and Thor refuses. And Thor's friend Guy is like, what the fuck are you doing? Just open your trunk, you asshole. Yeah. Um, so Thor complies. And in the trunk, the officer discovers a 22 caliber pistol wrapped in a paper bag. Mm -mm. Um, but when he questions Thor about it, he states that he brought the gun in case him and Guy decided to go to the creek to shoot rabbits. That fun yeah. thing you do when you're high? <laughs> Kill animals? Oh, you better. Um, Guy, who has never known Thor to be outdoorsy or hunter type. Right. Or hate rabbits. Or hate rabbits. None of that's ever come up. He is looking at his phone like, what the fuck's he talking about? But it was a rural area, and it wasn't uncommon for people to have handguns in their car uh, for hunting. Mm -hmm. So the cop buys the story, cites them for possession, and goes on his way. Mm. Um, Thor has no record, and this near miss keeps his fingerprints out of the system Oy. for a couple more years. So let's talk about good old Thor. Thor Ness Christensen is born in Denmark on December 28th, 1957. In 1962, um, his parents emigrate to the U.S. Thor's five years old, um, and they end up moving to Solvang. <laughs> they're from Denmark, so they're like, oh, we have to go to that oh, fake yeah. tourist town. We better <laughs> live there. This is, where we're, this is where we're wanted. This is where our people are. Well, yeah. and the father was um, opens a restaurant there that actually became very popular, hmm. so it was the right move yeah um thor is a bright kid but he has random outbursts of meanness and strange behavior towards his friends mm -mm. um you're right when he's in sixth or seventh grade his friend ron bender notices that thor's developing a tendency uh to step on and kill small animals for fun fuck mm-hmm Eventually, um, it escalates. He starts capturing birds and frogs and tying firecrackers to them and letting ah. them go to just to watch them uh, explode. No. Um, so, but no, no one back then. People are like, "Oh, you're that's so cute because you're a boy." Um, 
No one's worried about it in the least. Yeah. Um, also, Thor's father is a terrible alcoholic who abuses him. Um, so Thor starts drinking when he's about 12 years old. Um, what yeah. the fuck? Well, you get super fucked up when you're 12. That's true. Um, and of course, that Im- it almost immediately leads to drug use and uh, a really uh, a large weight gain for Thor. He ends up gaining like almost 100 pounds. Um, and he also doesn't do well with girls, which it's, you know, cre- kind of, obviously he's very troubled and mm-hmm. there's a lot of anger and there's mm-hmm. a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite the abuse from his father, it's also kind of this conflicting thing in their family. His parents are rich because of their successful restaurant. So what they do is they buy him an Audi when he turns 16. They leave him home alone constantly, but they just leave like piles of cash there for him while they're at the restaurant. Um, So he takes the cash and he buys um, Cools, (laughs) the great menthol cigarette Cools. Okay. Um, and fifths of scotch that he drinks and sips like before school. Holy shit. So he's going for it. Um, oh my God. Um, okay. And then he, and up into like in, into her early high school, he gets good grades. He's a smart kid, but, um, then his grades plummet and he eventually drops out and gets a job as a gas station attendant. Um, so after this encounter w- that he and his friend guy have with that cop that night, mm-hmm. um, Thor moves to Oregon. You know, just for fun. Okay. Um, so during this time, um, the the hitchhiker kidnappings and murders stop entirely. Um, and then when Thor returns, he gets himself an apartment in Goleta, and he's lost a bunch of weight. You know, he got himself together in Oregon. And, uh, and he even gets a girlfriend who he met while she was hitchhiking. Oh... But his close friends notice that he now has a keen interest in keeping his car clean, particularly his trunk, which they all notice and think is super weird. And they also notice that he starts making regular trips down to Los Angeles and then coming back and bragging about all the awesome sex he had with sex workers while he was there. And they're all just like, cool, dude. (laughs) Um, So that... It is his new, that's apparently his new thing. Okay, so on May 26, 1979, the body of 22-year-old Laura Sue Benjamin, who's a sex worker from Los Angeles, is found in the San Gabriel Mountains, just north of L.A., and she, like the other woman in the Isla Vista um, and Los Angeles um, attacks, has been shot in the head. On July 11th, 1979, Lydia Preston, so this is our survivor from the beginning of the mm-hmm. story, She's in a bar called The Bottom Line in Hollywood. Oh, you bet. Have you heard of that? It became Cactus and Coke. What was it? Ferns (laughs) Ferns and Coke. Coke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Lydia's in this bar. It's been three years, it's been three months, sorry, since her attack. And um, she's, you know, obviously just trying to live a normal life. Yeah. And uh, then to her horror, she's standing there and she turns around and she sees the man no. who shot her in the head walk into the bar. What in the fuck? It's her attacker, Thor Christensen. Holy shit. So she's just like, not today, motherfucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not then and not now. Wow. She fucking walks straight to a payphone, calls the police. The police show up. They immediately <gasps> arrest him. Yep. 
because they know they have her whole story they know her they went through that whole fucking thing with her like they know it all and and they get there immediately get him and now they're the the cops in la and the cops in the santa barbara isla vista area are able to connect all of these murders throughout both cities to one man thor christensen i feel like it never happens like that like what a satisfying so fucking satisfying and the woman herself who got fucking shot in the head Uh. is just like uh he's right there hi i didn't die asshole wow yes Oh my God! And and when they do connect all of these murders, they realize that all of these women look eerily similar. <gasps> Creepy. Yeah. Um, so in early 1980, Thor is tried in Santa Monica for the murder of Laura Benjamin and the attempted murder of Lydia Preston. Um, and Thor first enter tries to enter a plea of insanity and then realizes he's not going to be able to like fake that out um, or prove it. And so he switches his plea to guilty. He's then tried in Isla Vista for the murders he committed there, and he again pleads guilty. So in court, they actually, when you plead guilty, he had to explain the murders, what? and that's when everyone finds out the reason that the bodies were nude is because he was a necrophiliac. And so he killed them first and then had sex with their boss. Oh my God. Yeah. They didn't know that before he personally told everybody in court. Ugh. Then he's sentenced to life in prison without, with the possibility of parole in the year 2004. No, 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 no. It's 1980. Okay, but then. What? Hold on. Okay. You're going to like this. Okay. March 30th, 1981, Thor is stabbed to death with a 10-inch homemade knife in the exercise yard at Folsom Prison. The guys at Folsom Prison are just like, no, motherfucker, not at all. Not at all. This fucking story. Yes. Twists and turns. I find jailhouse justice so goddamn satisfying because you know what it means? There's people in jail. It's like not everybody. Some people get arrested and go to jail. They're still fucking moral human beings that are like, fuck off. Yeah. I can make a shank out of anything and I don't like your behavior. Yes. And And I'm already in here. So I might as well take care of some shit. Amen. Preach. Slow songs. They're for skinny <laughs> I can't move all of this. Okay, so Jay found me a listener email. Yes, listen to this shit. <clears throat> Hello, Karen, George, Stephen, and Animals. My best friend showed off your podcast two weeks ago. Showed off your podcast. <laughs> Check this shit out. Oh, look at I listened to this. <laughs> And I just have to say, I had no idea there was a name for people like me. Murderinos. What? Like, that's an actual thing? Okay, okay, okay. So, I've been debating sending this email because it's pretty intense. Also, not talked about with, super not talked about within our family. Very sore subject. My dad is an epic, total Southern Cali blonde hair pool plasterer and partied hard in the late 70s. Yeah. He's from Solvang. Seriously, the most random Dutch town ever. (laughs) (laughs) Born and raised. And his best friend growing up, Thor Niss Christensen. Holy shit. Also, Bender and Guy uh, were close friends with his, with, 
with this person's dad. Uh-huh. We visit them when we are in town. My sister still lives there, so we visit often. So this documentary thing comes up, and my dad gets super weird and unsettled. We were worried. He wasn't sleeping. He seemed really stressed out. So us kid, kids got ballsy and asked if he was part of it. My dad's response was, not intentionally. What? No, I my- can't handle any of this at all. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? I am, my mind is, I'm glad I'm not wearing that wig because it would have flown right <laughs> off my fucking head already. Flip that wig, baby. Yeah. Okay, so, this is my favorite. No, my dad my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. He looks tough, but literally is like a big teddy bear who is not capable of such things. Well, he didn't know what Thor was up to at all, but Thor had stolen my dad's 22 caliber without dad's knowledge, and then afterwards helped him look for it. Oh. Yeah. Uh, when they confiscated the gun in 78, I'm not sure if that's when the interaction started or when Thor pled guilty, again, super rough topic for my dad, but oh my God, I have so many questions. Dad wouldn't give much detail, but because it was his gun, he was investigated and interrogated to the point of PTSD. He wouldn't tell us what the interrogation looked like or what happened, just that it was bad. Hence why he was super not okay when the documentary guys called. I guess it was pretty horrid, and what was worse was that my dad loved Thor like a brother, and they were best friends. He was in his fucking goddamn wedding. (laughs) What... When he talked about it, he had tears of sadness because he had no idea. Needless to say, my dad carries a lot of guilt regarding the gun, which, holy fucking shitballs, I would too. Well, one day I'll get Pops to answer my questions, and when I do, I will email you guys. (laughs) Leave your fucking father alone. Leave him alone. Talk about succession. There's so many other things in the world. Stop it. Uh Jesus. Don't bring us into it. Um, oh, oh yeah, I just had this, but oh yeah, another detail I found out while researching. Thor died, stabbed to death in Folsom Prison, March thirty, March thirtieth, nineteen eighty-one. I was born March thirtieth, nineteen eighty-nine. Gah! That's, there's not a connection. Not there. at all. <laughs> Maybe it was the same year. It was eight years later on the same day. <laughs> totally connected. <laughs> <laughs> also now we have your birth date yeah that's right uh, I do wonder how his death affected my dad like was he conflicted not sure I would have been what he did to those women was beyond horrid he didn't deserve a fast death sincerely the chick that also shops at the headless market in Escatada, Florida no sorry Oregon <laughs> I didn't fucking sign it she did <laughs> But anyway, that's basically someone who knew where that gun came from. Okay, I'll end this with something that I absolutely love and that's so beautiful. And when we do these stories, it's it's so... I love it so much because you can pull these rad things out of it. They're like little pieces of life. In honor of Patty Laney and her passion for juggling, Isla Vista has held an annual juggling festival for the past 43 years. They just had it in May. They just had it in May. And all the proceeds from the event go to the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center. So, if you want a t-shirt from the the juggling festival, you can go to sbjuggle.org 
And that will also go toward the Rape Crisis Center. If you want a juggling t-shirt, you can get it. And that is the rotten tale of serial killer Thor Christensen. Karen. I'd say top three stories no. you've ever done. Yeah. Really? That was amazing. Oh. That was amazing. almost cried. I don't ever almost cry. <laughs> Georgia hates crying. I hate crying. We have an amazing uh, surprise guest for you. That's right. We're so excited. Yeah. And we're so, so honored. Yeah. She's one of the first female detectives in Sacramento. The first female detective to run her own task force and was one of the original and primary investigators on the East Area Rapist case before before retiring as Sacramento County Sheriff's Detective in 2001. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage right now, Miss Carol Daly. Uh, I think you should walk down and say hi to those guys before you sit. It's pretty crazy, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God, we're so excited you're here. I didn't get you a wig, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right, I'm wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, so we know you all from uh, following. Uh, East Area Rapist and obviously the, what then became Golden State Killer, the Iran's case. Um, do you just want to talk about that a little bit, about what it was like at that time and to be in the position that you were in um, as one of the first female detectives? We had, um, when I joined the Sheriff's Department in 1968, there had been two ladies on the department for four years. And um, women coming in, it was a special classification, female deputy sheriff, uh, separate criteria to apply and everything. Um, Early on in law enforcement, um, we didn't wear, um, we wore skirts and high heels did and you, carried a gun in our purse. So, <laughs> Sorry, th was that the, a requirement? Yes. We, uh, oh. we weren't allowed to wear uh, pants and um, all of our uh, shirts were tailored off in the men's uniforms. We didn't have women's uniforms. Um, so it was, it was a, a very early time in law enforcement. Uh, we weren't allowed to work in patrol. We couldn't work in the jail. So there were only three positions that we could work at. Um, and uh, one was detectives, one was long-haul transportation, and the other one was courthouse. So after we trained for about six months, uh, we were given our assignments. And so I went to detectives. Had been in detectives about nine years and had just transferred um, into the homicide detail. So, right? <laughs> Thank you. She's talking. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I really specialized in, in crimes against children for several years, and then I was working uh, sexual assaults. Then when I uh, transferred into the homicide detail, it was just shortly before the East Area Rapist started working. 
and um, I uh, had responded to um, one of the first scenes. And uh, then after we realized we had a, a series going, there was a task force formed. So I was the lead investigator just simply to work with all of the victims. Yeah. Uh, we had a large task force um, of people that had different assignments. So I wasn't leading the task force, but uh, I was uh, there to interview the victims. I think it's so lucky, though, that, that you were there because it's that thing that, you know, uh, as a woman, I think there's a, like an empathy piece that maybe you brought that they didn't realize was so necessary, especially in that situation where it was such an extreme. Those crimes were so extreme, so brutal. Uh, the crimes were very extreme and very brutal. Um, and it was really very interesting in uh, working with these victims. Uh, they came from um, great backgrounds. They were educated women. Um, they were career, and some of them were just young, 13, 15. Um, and this was their first experience of um, anything, you know, being assaulted or anything like that. Um, so just working with them and going into a crime scene and um, trying to um, put them at ease. And I think the first thing that it was so important is to give them as much control back as they had because they had total loss control over it. So you give them as much control and just listen to them at first. And then when you start asking uh, more questions about, please tell me a little bit more, tell me a little bit more. But letting them know that, that this isn't just one crime, that everything that happened to them became a different kind of crime and we could compound the charges mm. um, and thinking down the line, you know, when an arrest would be made. Uh, so um, very sensitive investigations and um, if they needed to cry, they could cry. And um, we had times during the investigation when, you know, we would maybe um, um, just have to laugh about some things. And um, it was, uh, sometimes it, it was a nervous laugh sure. and, and it was okay. Yeah. 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 Yes. Amazing. But at the time uh, that these, um, that the East Area Rapist was working, it, uh, rapes were just a misdemeanor. Oh, I mean, are you serious? Oh, no. I, I, a lot of people don't realize that. They were not a serious crime. And um, rape victims uh, not only were assaulted at the time, but as they went through the court process, they became the ones that were at fault. They were, they were always the ones who were condemned for being the rape victim. Um, so it was a, a big movement of women right after, uh, during this time, that they pushed and pushed to get it reclassified to a felony. And now, of course, you look at, at the uh, crime, at the punishment and things that are going on. So it was actually women who got together and pushed and said, this isn't right. Yes. This isn't right. That's right. Wow. That, that's incredible. One of my favorite, um, or I guess one of our favorite, because uh, of course we've watched so many of the Irons and the, like the specials that are on TV and all you know the mm -hmm. things that we've seen. And our favorite discovery was very early on. 
George and I said a phrase that became that became almost a motto of the show, which is fuck politeness. Like you don't have yeah. to be nice to people. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be nice to people. You don't owe anybody anything. You certainly don't owe strangers your time or anything. And then we were watching one of those things and you are speaking to um, the, you know, the group of uh, people that came the um, when everybody came to yeah, the... I want to say congregation, but that's not no, right. No, um, <laughs> you know, the, the community right. meeting. Yes, yeah. one of the community meetings, And right. you basically, in a, a much more polite way, <laughs> said, yeah. fuck politeness, you don't have to, yeah. you don't owe right. anybody anything, fight. you have to op- open your door to anybody, you and don't. You, yeah, you told everyone to fight, mm-hmm. and we were so moved by yes. that. And we had always encouraged victims, you know, try to take charge, do whatever you can to get away. Um, however, with this particular rapist, because he was so violent and we really knew that he wanted to kill, um, that we said, do whatever he tells you to do because you need to spare your life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a very hard thing to do. The community was in a frenzy at the time. And um, for some reason, I was out front <laughs> at all of the community meetings and with the media and and mostly because I had interviewed all of the victims and so I was able to answer all of the questions. Um, But it was a a very tough time in the community um, um, for a period of over two years. Yeah, because it just kept happening. Yes, it kept happening. Uh, And we'd have one at least once a month and then months we had four in a month and sometimes (sighs) we had two in a night. And we were just running from crime scene to crime scene. How did you deal with that personally? Yeah. I mean, did you have a coping mechanism? Did you were you prepared in any way for that level of uh, continual, uh, I don't know, stress? From the very beginning, um, when I was asked about that, um, I it, I didn't focus on me, and I think that that helped. I always had to focus on the victims and what was happening and what we could do uh, to try to solve the crime. So. Um, it wasn't anything that I ever took into myself, but uh, to try and help the victims in what they were doing. Yeah. Amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about what the past, I think, year and a half has been like when they finally caught him and, and locked him up and <laughs> you got to tell the victims <laughs> well, yeah, what happened? Actually, um, it probably started about two or three years prior to that when there, when the statewide task force mm-hmm. uh, was put together uh, to really concentrate on uh, all the scientific information that was available to them to make the arrest. And so I'd had a lot of contact with all of the victims during that time. Um, and then um, I was in the car and Sheriff Scott Jones called me and said, Carol, guess what? we've identified who the East Area Rapist is. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, this is his name and he's in booking right now. (sighs) And uh, so my first comment to him is, you have to tell the victims right now before they hear it in the media. Yeah. And that has really been um, a big issue for me with all of the victims over the years is that they always heard everything from the media instead of being told first. And his comment to me was, start making the phone calls. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So incredible. Yeah. So incredible. We heard that you have a a story about Paul Holes. Yeah. That's pretty funny. (laughs) What's your background with Paul Holes? Yeah. Well, actually, until I hadn't ever really talked to him until tonight. Uh, (laughs) What? (laughs) What? 
we had uh, we had met at a couple of events, but we were busy going in different directions. And uh, but my daughter, our granddaughter, is a huge, huge podcast fan, Yay! and she listens to them all. And uh, so when she knew that uh, Paul Holes was part of the arrest team, and and uh, she called me one day and she said, Grandma. I really, really love you, but I'm hot for holes. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, and I didn't know Paul that well, I, 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 but I knew that he had moved to Colorado, that he had retired, and uh, that he was starting a new career. And so I just sent him an email, and I said, you know, my granddaughter's a big fan of yours. Uh, she's a teacher. <laughs> And um, do you have a picture that you could send her <laughs> and autograph it? And I said it really put me in, in you know, good side with her. You, when so. you backstage, you said it would make me the favorite grandma. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, anyway, a few, uh, uh, probably two or three weeks later, she sends me this picture by text, and she said, Grandma, did you do this for me? Paul Holes not only sent him a picture of himself, he did a collage, he did a picture of me, and he did a picture of him, a couple of D'Angelo and some other things, and then autographed it with a very nice comment about me. And uh, she said, I am just moved to tears. So he, you know, as busy as he was, so that's my experience with Paul, that he was very kind. And when I talked to him tonight, he is was very kind, uh, he's busy, uh, <laughs> but with his career yeah. and everything. Uh, but I really appreciated him taking the time to do that. Yeah, yeah. he's the greatest. He's great. He is. Yeah. Um, Speaking of photos, I think you've seen this, but oh. this is one of um, uh, one of our listeners sent this to us pretty soon after D'Angelo was arrested. Of course, we were out of our tree about yeah. it and talked about it and recorded an, an episode as we watched that um, the uh, the case uh, the I don't. The next day, the press conference, thank oh, yeah, you. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it was like such a big deal yeah. to us. It was, uh, th this case was actually the first case I did on this podcast. Yeah. What's it? Episode okay. one, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's been, yeah, and I think everybody has followed it for so long. It's such right. a hor mm -hmm. horrible thing. Well, here's you. Oh, there's. Oh. Right? I love it so much. I feel, I hope you understand how incredibly inspiring you are yeah. to all of us i really uh, watching looking at all this stuff i think we all kind of feel that same way we're like we see pictures like this and we're just like fuck yes <laughs> like it's it's just so cool yeah we um i um i did not even know about this picture it was <laughs> and until um um a joke productions did their five-part series yeah and um um, Paul, uh, Todd Lindsay showed me this picture, and I said, ah, "I don't even remember that." And I think I, I think I, I don't know if I had come back from the FBI Academy, and uh, there was a lot of media coverage, and they wanted me down at the range, and and um, anyway, I forgot all about it. <laughs> we haven't. <laughs> and yeah. The, yeah, the pearls are a good. The touch. pearls were required by the Sacramento <laughs> Police Department. She was like, required to wear. Huge strand of pearls. And then we so, have. Do, can we bring up the other one, which is the um, Murderino art? <laughs> have you seen that? It's, it's a, yes. a hand-drawn? Yeah. Yes. Oh, good. I okay. have several copies. Do you really? <laughs> I bought them for the granddaughter. Oh, there we go. Mm. Yeah. 
we just we want you to know you're a real hero to us. Yeah. Your work is is revered and intensely respected. We think you're amazing. Yep. And here's just one more reason to love Carol Daly. Um, so we offered all the people that came and did this weekend with us, everybody got a stipend. And when Carol was informed that she was getting a stipend for this weekend... That's paid. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> that's a little walking around money. Um, uh, she said she didn't want the money because this was a public service that she liked to do. Can you believe uh, that? To talk about this yeah, stuff. Thank you. And we were so... We were so touched by that because having you here is like such a treat for us and we we are you know we've been so excited about this yeah so we wanted to do something yeah so we basically matched the amount of your stipend and we're going to donate ten thousand dollars to rain in the name of carol thank you so much yes thank you thank you thank you it's a true honor to have you here it's the best way we can think to cap off this show with this awesome weekend and we just we can't thank Thank you you. enough thank you very much thank you any standing ovation bullshit she's like okay peace out public service we're like oh yeah this is a public service for us too yeah Uh, oh yeah no um um, should we yeah oh yeah so look we're gonna do hometowns our way tonight yeah (laughs) here's Vince with the mic (laughs) Vince Avery ladies and gentlemen thank you so that wig Right? Yes. You guys had been doing whatever. You came to the door of the room and you were like, get rid of this. I was like, get rid of this? You go, get rid of this. Oh, I went the and threw of- it away <laughs> in I- the other green room. So then I'm standing here and you're like, where's the bag? I run up. There's, there's fucking orange peels and shit on top of no. it. I had to- yeah. That wig was in the trash. Oh, shit. I heard you go get rid of this. And I was like, what did you fucking do? I love it. I realized I had it in my hand and a gift bag isn't gift wrap. So of course we're we're never not two feet away from each other. So I'm like, oh yeah, I guess if I hold this in a gift bag, she's going to see it. So I hand it to Vince, but then she's still there, so I can't go, oh, I got her a wig and I don't want her to see it because so you can get rid of it. So I just said the very last part that I was thinking. Get rid of it. And so I, I see it. that and I'm like, okay, either she got me a present or they're dealing each other drugs. And I'm not going to ask either way. Vince and I are so high right now. Okay. So we have, um, we are, have some names of people who have um, hometowns that we would like to hear. Mm-hmm. Andrea from Calgary, will you please walk down so over, go there? over there? Where Vince is. We talked to you already today. Andrea from Calgary. Lisa from Virginia, please walk over there. Jenny from Cleveland, please walk over there. Jeannie from Indianapolis. And. Our contest winner for this weekend, the accountant Jessica from Connecticut. Right over there, Vince. Yeah. Do you know we talked about you while you were getting drunk? Yeah, what the, where the hell did you go? There was, we had a whole moment about you at the yeah. top of this show. She did your accent. It was amazing. I mean, they liked it. It was not accurate at all to your real accent. I do apologize. <laughs> She just turned to her friend and goes, they're talking to me. <laughs> we need
need you at all of our shows. <laughs> um, okay. Thank we you. You can bring the, the house, house lights down. Should we tell them the rules? We told, I said, don't be, don't get too drunk. And that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Every person we kept going. Okay. Does it have a good ending? Or will you be drunk? Okay, then great. <laughs> so if they did, it's, yeah. it's not our fault. And here they come in no particular order. Yeah. Give them a hand. It's so terrifying, you guys. Yes. Yeah, we'll just do it one at a time. Yeah. Andrea from Calgary. Andrea from Calgary. Andrea from Calgary. Calgary. Yes. The Canadians representing. That's right. That's right. Oh, say, let's hear your hometown, What's your Andrea. Hometown? Okay. Um, so, first of all, this was about a little over 10 years ago now. Um, at the time, I was working at a social services agency called CNIB. Thank you. So, I uh, was like uh, advocacy, um, public education for people with vision loss, right? And um, no two days, anybody who's worked for not-for-profit, not for no two days are the same, and you wear lots of different hats. And one day I got a call from um, an up-and-coming architect, and he was really interested in accessible design for, for people with disabilities. And I was like, that's awesome, great. So I was telling him, giving him some information, and I said, well, why don't you just come for a tour? Our whole building was designed for that purpose with, you know, high color contrast and tactile targets and everything like that. So he was all, he's like, yeah. So I give him the tour and he's a really cute guy. And <laughs> Sorry, but really quick, what if she's telling us like how she got married right now? She just doesn't even know what a hometown is at all. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a great story. Yeah, sorry. Really nice. <laughs> uh, he's, he's really personable, um, kind. Um, and this is all pertinent, I swear, okay? <laughs> um, at the end of the tour, he opened his wallet to give me a, his card, so it's going to give him some more information, and he had this beautiful family, and um, I said, wow, you're a lucky guy, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, I was lucky three times, blah, 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 so anyways... Um, we talked a few more times after that. He called for information. He would send me Christmas cards. He, you know, this and that. Nothing. He wasn't a personal friend, but, you know, mm -hmm. we knew each other. Um, and then I guess fast forward, maybe, maybe about a year, I had moved on to another job. Um, but I was listening to the morning news and there was a story of a murder suicide. And, um, I couldn't believe my ears when they said that this young man, Joshua Lal, has killed his downstairs tenant, his wife, and two of his three children. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Um, I just, I couldn't believe it. It just, it just, I didn't know how to process it. And it's not like it was my tragedy. I didn't know this person, like, super well. But at the same time, it was really affecting. Um, and then the twist to that, or the odd coincidence, I guess, is that um, as we found out more details about who this downstairs tenant was, well, it was actually a work associate of my then boyfriend. Oh wow. my God. He was a freelance photographer. She was a, a freelance writer. Um, and he's like, yeah, we knew, we knew Amber. He's like, you met her. You met her at Jackie's oh. party. Oh my so God. So it was just a lot to process for both of us and both in a really weird space for, you know, I guess weeks after that. And I never really talked about it that much because it felt like 
um, it's not my story, it's not my tragedy, and it wasn't like they were friends, like super close, but at the same time, holy shit! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, Andrea, That's yes. That's a lot. That's a yes. lot. Oh Amazing. <laughs> Andrea from Calgary, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Great Thank job. Okay, hi. Yeah, Let's hear yes. another terrible story. Hi. Yay. Je this is Jeannie, everybody. Jeannie. Hi. Jeannie, where are you from? Indianapolis. 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 Wait, are you the one that you told one already? Okay, wait. Remind us of the hometown you've told so far. Um, I mean, before. I, uh, at the last indie show, I told the story of the um, woman who murdered her boyfriend by sneaking up while he was sleeping and dropping the bowling ball on his head. Yeah. <laughs> but then your mom... And, yeah, and then my mom did the ultimate foot in mouth. And uh, <laughs> the woman was hiding out in her, uh, my mom's office during a break in the trial, and the press was trying to get in, my mom was like, oh, those damn reporters, couldn't you just bash their heads in? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Epic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So We're the, caught up. The, um, <laughs> she never lived that down. Her coworker was actually sitting on the floor behind his desk because he was laughing so hard. <laughs> oh yeah, it was... Yeah. So, very awkward. Yeah. 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 Yes, very okay. awkward. What do you have for us tonight? So, okay. So... Um, this is a story of uh, a uh, physician that I used to work with. Um, I'm a physician assistant, and I live in Indianapolis, and I used to work in Lafayette, Indiana, and there was an orthopedic surgeon that worked there. Um, who His name was Dr. Gregory Conrath, and if you Googled him, you would find that he had written all of these, you know, how to connect this tendon with this ligament and the innovative way to do this, just brainiac. He was a mountain climber who had climbed a mountain on every continent, and he wrote a book, a political thriller set in the Middle East, and, wow. and he was a total dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it matches up. Yeah. yeah. Um, his name was Gregory Conrath, and our nickname for him was the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> um, That's clever. I like it. Every time you had to call him for any reason, it was just a nightmare. He had a short fuse and liked to yell. And one time he actually wrote a letter to the hospital complaining about me, something that I had done. And I was terrified. And my uh, superiors were basically like, oh, you got your first complaint letter. Yay! You know, <laughs> you're one of us. So um, I left the hospital. And then um, a few years later, uh, I saw his face on the cover of Indianapolis Monthly Magazine. Um, and it turns out what happened was um, he was getting a divorce from his wife. And he... Um, didn't show up at his divorce settlement hearing for some reason. And the judge was like, okay, well, here's how much you made last year. So this is how much you're going to pay your wife. And, you know, clunk with the gavel and that was it. So he found a new girlfriend and they'd been together about a year and he took her to Puerto Rico. The girlfriend's name was Joanna. And they're drinking one night in Puerto Rico and he starts telling Joanna about how he's going to kill his ex-wife. And he has this meticulously planned, um, he has done all sorts of research on which, like, gunshot wounds to the head, which bullets work best. He knows oh to use hollow point bullets. 
He's bought an untraceable gun. He's going to wear two sets of scrubs. And she starts to figure out that he is, wants her to be his alibi. <laughs> Joanna is a badass. <laughs> Joanna reaches into her purse, finds the voice memo button, which... Who the hell yes. can know where that is? Yeah. Hits record and tapes this whole thing. Jesus. And then lets him tell this whole story. And he's like, you know, I she's got a million dollar life insurance policy, so I'm going to be set and everything. And then she's like, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm all in. I'm going to be your alibi. I'm just going to go pee. And goes to the bathroom, hides in the bathroom. He comes, pounds on the door, goes back to the bar. He goes up to the room. She lays there, lets him think that um, she's asleep. And then he passes out. She gets up, goes to the airport, <laughs> takes, uh, gets on email, emails this recording to a bunch of law enforcement, flies immediately to their house, takes $30,000 out of their joint checking account, and is packing her bags. Yes. Police show up at the door. And this woman's like, hi, I'm a police officer, and your boyfriend, Greg, just called and said that he thinks you're going to kill yourself. <gasps> and so Joanna, again, badass, is like, mm, I'm going to need to see a badge. And it is actually a cop, oh. thank goodness. So anyway, oh. she tells him the whole story. I'll try to speed this up. She <laughs> tells him the whole story. They arrest him. He... Um, Sits in jail for like a month and then goes out on bail with restraining orders. He lasts eight days before he blows the restraining orders. He uh, gets busted for trying to basically stalk both of them. Um, Creepy stalk. Like he hired a private investigator and then he was writing fake prescriptions to Joanna, trying to get her to come fill them. Um, So he uh, ends up with a bracelet on his ankle, which he saws off. Police to Mexico. (laughs) There are twists and turns. Um, So, yada, yada, yada. Because of Indiana law, you can't get convicted of attempted murder unless you actually wound someone. But he went to jail for stalking and um, for writing fake prescriptions. He's in jail for 10 years, and he has filed 95 lawsuits and counting randomly against his lawyer, the state of Indiana, the prison system, all these frivolous little things. Uh, Indianapolis Monthly for writing that article that I researched with, (laughs) and now probably me for telling this story. (laughs) (laughs) But that is the story of Crazy Dr. Conrad. Unbelievable. Jeannie, you've done it again. (laughs) Nice. Two for two. That was amazing, (laughs) Jeannie. Oh my God! <laughs> Representing <laughs> Indianapolis well. Oh my so God! So good, guys. Okay, next up, twists and turns. Hi. Hi. It's Lisa, everyone. Hi. Lisa. It's Lisa, everybody. Lisa, where are you from? I'm from Williamsburg, Virginia. All right. Nice. What you got for us? So this actually, I was not a part of, but I was kind of there for it. This actually just happened this July 5th. Um, there was a incident, a 911 call based on just what it was known as suspicious incident mm. at a apartment building in my town. When the police got there, they found two girls who had escaped from a man who was basically trying to bring them in for sex trafficking. They had been strangled, assaulted, and robbed. They were fine. They survived. <sighs> they got cleaned up on site. Everything was great. But now there is this man on the loose. Well, (laughs) 
it was that's right <laughs> this is where it gets hilarious this is where it, <laughs> <laughs> he slips yeah. on a fucking banana peel <laughs> like you wouldn't believe it's just some things you don't think you have to like tell people to not do if you're gonna like live a life of crime yeah <laughs> he had he had tattoos on his hands his neck whatever but he also had six triangles tattooed across his forehead and Sobriety? then across his cheeks what okay six inverted triangles Okay. So he, he likes was math like, a lot. <laughs> he was like hella easy to spot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so six days later, I'm at work. I'm coming back from my lunch break and I'm noticing there's a lot of cops at the intersection by my office building. And I'm like, that's weird. Something's going on. 20 minutes later, we get an uh, internal everybody email saying, because we all had badges, do not let anybody into the building. We are on lockdown. There's a situation happening across the street. And we said, oh, shit, okay. You know. Get to a window. We were super, yeah. That's exactly what we did. <laughs> we, like, oh, we like opened the curtains. Well, we see all of these cop cars in the parking lot of the best place in the world, Cracker Barrel. Yes. Oh, hey! Yes. Best the, cameo. Yeah. The parking lot was between the Cracker Barrel and a Travel Lodge Inn. Well, Class. he had decided to, you know, you got to get your grits on. Right. Sure. So he was at... <laughs> He went to Cracker Barrel. Covered and, course, and smothered, right? Covered in triangles. <laughs> oh, <right>. <laughs> smothered <laughs> in triangles. <laughs> and someone noticed him, and sure. he, of course, caught wind. He ran across the street to the travel lodge, no. found himself a vacant room to hide out in until things had cleared. Well, two maintenance workers at the lodge heard noises coming from what they knew was a vacant room, right. so they went upstairs. He had immediately held them up at gunpoint, <gasps> had one guy on the ground, the other guy, I don't know how, bolted, got the authorities. While this was happening, he let the second guy go. He ran into his own special separate room. Don't know how he kept breaking into all these rooms. Yeah. Um, and basically, he had a standoff with the police for about two hours. And then finally, he came quietly. They arrested him. Well, about two weeks ago, actually, he was deemed not fit for trial because he had a mental health inspection. Oh, shit. And was said that he couldn't, he didn't know what he was doing. Apparently, he was being a real ass to his attorney. Uh-huh. And he didn't like him, and he wasn't cooperating. And I was like, okay, Ted Bundy, like, let's calm down, you know? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't like their attorney. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, he just, like, wasn't talking to him, was ignoring him, wasn't answering questions. So in January, he is going to be kind of reassessed. Uh-huh. And until then, he's going to be in jail. And if he is tried, it will be prison for life. So- wow. Oh, my God, Lisa. That, w- that had everything. That Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel. That's all we remember from the entire story. <laughs> Lisa, everyone. Great job. Well Hi. done. Next up. Hi. Sprankers. Sprankers, everybody. It's our Sprankers friend. It's Jenny, everybody. Hi. Oh, my God. You can't see anyone once you're up here. I know. Isn't, isn't it good? Is. Hey, guys. It's scary. Woo. Where are you from? Sprankers. Cleveland. Yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. Sprankers. I'm from Sprankers, New York. <laughs> uh, Cleveland, okay. Ohio. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Cleveland. Um, okay, so I work in a very um, glamorous job in Cleveland, Ohio at a TV station. Ooh. Oh, oh news time. <laughs> um, so we have security there because even though it's just local TV, we still have people who are crazy and try and come in and talk to the anchors or whatever. So um, there was a guy named Juan, and I had just started at the station in 2007, and he was our security guard, and he was super sweet. And you know when you start a new job and you're like, 
how can I meet more people here? And then they're like, there's a bowling league. Fun. <laughs> and then you're like, yes. Yes. I'm in. Sign me up for that. So you get into the bowling league, and you, your mom gives you her shoes and her ball. Aww. Thanks, mom. What's your mom's name? Janet. Hey, oh. Janet. Oh. Love it. Every time you talk about your mom, I'm like, Janet, Janet, Janet. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so we're, we're bowling. I had Janet's ball. Uh, I'm bowling. We go to the bar. We're getting Bud Lights. We're, you know, piling around. Duan is there, and he says to me, uh, he starts talking to me. He starts flicking me in the ear. Hm. I was like, Duan, back up. <laughs> he's also a tiny a, a petite flower of a man mm-hmm. even though he was our security guard he wasn't very big I'm yeah. tall got it um, so he, he's flicking me near I tell him to get away from me he backs up he looks me dead in the eye and he says Jenny I am the law oh shit and I was like cool buddy <laughs> great we finish our game I leave I go home uh, I think it was two weeks later our boss comes in and he pulls us all into the aisle and he says, guys, we got to talk. And I said, okay. And he said, you know, Duan? And I go, mm-hmm, yeah, bowl with him. That's what yeah. we do. Um, and he says, yeah, he killed someone last oh. night. <gasps> and I was like, Duan? <laughs> Duan? The one you told him to get away from you? Yeah. <laughs> Who told me he was the law. The law? The yeah. law. Yeah. So he, uh, it turns out he hid uh, outside of his ex-girlfriend's house. Uh, she had, uh, I think, two kids and a boyfriend who she w- had just gotten engaged to. Uh, she waited for the, the ex and her kids to leave. Good. Yes. Okay, okay. less casualties. Uh, and then he, uh, he, he slashed the tires of the, the new boyfriend fiancé, so he couldn't leave. Uh, he goes into the house, he pistol whips this poor guy, uh, slashes his throat... And then leaves him on the bed in a crucifix position. Oh my god! Oh. So he he got arrested pretty quickly because it was pretty obvious that he was the the culprit here. Um, so he uh, he gets arrested. They test him because he actually did have a very low IQ. Um, but as it turns out, the the judge was like, "You've held down a job at a TV station as a security. Like we don't believe that you're mentally incapable of handling mm-hmm. this." Mm-hmm. Uh, so he gets tried, and he is the third person since 1981 in Ohio to get the death penalty. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that is my story of Dwan, the security guard. <laughs> Amazing, oh Jenny. God. So good. And firsthand. Oh, the ear. Oh, the ear flick. That's amazing. Great job. Great job. We have All one right. more. Are you ready? Jessica. This is our contest winner, Jessica, Jessica from Connecticut. <laughs> Jessica, um, tell us about the day you found out you were going to come to my favorite weekend. So the day I found out was right near a big tax deadline for my terrible people who don't give me their shit on time. <laughs> we have an extra six months to get it done, so I'm like waiting for my people, like hitting refresh on my email, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> So it's like, oh my God, you won. Like, here's your information. We need a W-9. Send us your name, address, and social security number. And I'm like, I'm smarter than this. So I'm like, is this for real? They're like, yeah, it is. I'm like, great. I'll upload my W-9 via secure link because share file and I don't want my identity to get stolen. That's good. That's good to note. Accountants are boss bitches. (laughs) Get with it. They don't mess. No, we don't. So... 
onto my oh yeah and yeah. I got really excited I invited my brother's girlfriend so nice. hey, shout yes. out to Hi. so what's on, your hometown oh um so I'm from Norwich Connecticut I okay. live in Colchester. If you're from the East Coast, I live near Mohegan Sun. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love those mean? casinos. So um, Inside stuff? What does it mean for what? a girl from California? What is Mohegan Sun? Oh, it's a casino. Oh. <laughs> yes. Right. It's That's your big lovely. brag? Yeah. <laughs> I live near both casinos. Hey, girl. Shit. Yeah. Casinos. Oh, shit. She yeah. can gamble whenever she wants. Exactly. And smoke. <laughs> yeah. Not marijuana. <laughs> okay. Okay. Alright, so on to the murder. Um I'm going to talk about Connecticut serial killer Michael Ross and all the weird connections we have to him. Okay. So um Michael Ross was born in Putnam, Connecticut in nineteen fifty-nine. Um his mom wasn't super well, and um shocker, she kind of like beat the shit out of her kids and got institutionalized. Uh. And they're like, you know what's a great idea? Let's have this young child move in with his uncle who probably molested him, mm. but no one knows because the uncle committed suicide when Michael Ross was six. Oof. So he moves to the chicken farm and guess what his job was at the chicken farm? Killing, Killing chicken. the chickens with his bare hands. What? So, yeah. As like, a six-year-old? Yeah, he killed the chickens. <laughs> One of his nicknames, I think he was the roadside strangler and the egg man. Probably because like wow. chickens, eggs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, he did that and then he ended up going to Cornell where my brother's girlfriend went. Ah. He studied agriculture and then he became an insurance salesman, which is important in the future. But while he was in college, he got a taste for stalking and raping. So yeah, we have a quality individual on our hands. Yeah. So um, between 1981 and 1984, he committed eight murders. He would find women walking on the side of the road pick them up, throw them in his blue car, which was like a very weird color blue. Everyone knew it. Mm -hmm. And then he would murder them. So um, my dad's friend, Wendy Barabalt, was 17. The last time he saw her was at his high school graduation. Sorry, this is weird. I'm going back and forth. No, on right. June 10th, play, play to the crowd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on June 10th, 1984, um, her body was found a couple days later, shoved in a stone wall uh. near the McDonald's. And the cop that found her ended up marrying my mom's best friend. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Really weird. And um, back to the insurance salesman. Oh. Supposedly, this wasn't on the Wikipedia page, but everyone I know like said this. The day after he killed Wendy, he tried to sell her sister life insurance. What? Yes. Yes. What a dick. Yeah, exactly. So because he had this like really noticeable blue car, that's how he was found. He ended up confessing to all eight murders and while he was in jail I guess he became a super Catholic and got a yeah um, I went to Catholic school so I can say that and he got a fiance and she was like oh you know God forgives him and he's excited to die because he's going to go to a better place I'm like okay dude whatever and um, according to his Wikipedia page he had many accomplishments but as a rape survivor myself fuck you bro you have no accomplishments because you did rape and murder yeah. so go fuck yourself yeah that's, that's right, right. Yeah, yeah you did girl thank you yeah you did <laughs> Yeah, fuck rapists, right? Yeah. That's something right. we can all agree on. You don't get on. Exactly right. Right. No, you, Like, why Wikipedia? Seriously? No. Yeah. So um, he was killed by lethal injection in 2005, and he was the first person to be, what's the word? Like, legally yeah. murdered by the state, the government? I'm yeah. blanking. No, you got you it. Yeah. Right. You're yeah. nailing it. In New England since the 60s. So that's, that's my story. Yeah. Just for him. Jessica, you've won everything Jessica. this weekend. You are the winner across the board. <laughs> We're so glad you got Thank to be you. here. So excited to be here.
Yeah. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Oh my God. Awesome. Have fun. Wow. That was so, that was a cavalcade of solid stories. That's right. Oh, amazing. For you every, picked all of those too. For You're, every live show we do, we need to go to the city two days before and then just start casually meeting and chatting with people. <laughs> and telling people not to get drunk. And that's it. <laughs> that's right. And not give out fireball shots as our co- specialty cocktail. We were asking for it I with mean, that truly. one. I truly. Um, I cannot believe Fuck. this is the end. I can't either. That went so fast. That's crazy. We've been planning this and looking forward to this and adding these fun things to this all for like months. It's been so incredibly awesome. Yeah, so have you. Um, yeah, we want to thank all the Murderino makers that came yeah. and brought their stuff. We heard that went amazing, yeah. that the stuff was amazing. Everyone sold so much stuff. Um, and the, of course, the Murderino artists that came and put their stuff up. Like the, Everything you guys do is so awesome and full on. And it's so beautiful to watch all of you meet each other and hang out and establish these relationships and create and like do all this the stuff world it's really a fucking honor thank you all so so much yeah. for being here this weekend i can't believe it's over i know we should do this again sometime let's do it again next year yeah yay you guys are awesome have so much fun tonight yes. and maybe we'll see you out at the after show yeah <laughs> the after show i'll have a purple wig on george is gonna do some comedy after this <laughs> Do us a favor, stay sexy. And just...